0: Chapter Twenty Two of Elsie Venner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Elsie Venner by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Chapter Twenty Two Why Doctors Differ. The company rearranged itself with some changes after leaving the tea-table dudley venner was very polite to the widow but that lady having been called off for a few moments for some domestic arrangement he slid back to the side of helen darley his daughter's faithful teacher elsie had got away by herself and was taken up in studying the stereoscopic laocoon dick being thus set free had been seized upon by mrs blanche creamer who had diffused herself over three-quarters of a sofa and beckoned him to the remaining fourth mr bernard and miss letty were having a snug tete-a-tete in the recess of a bay-window the two doctors had taken 2 armchairs and sat squared off against each other their conversation is perhaps as well worth reporting as that of the rest of the company and as it was carried on in a louder tone was of course more easy to gather and put on record it was a curious sight enough to see those two representatives of two great professions brought face to face to talk over the subjects they had been looking at all their lives from such different points of view Both were old, old enough to have been molded by their habits of thought and life, old enough to have all their beliefs fretted in, as vintners say, thoroughly worked up with their characters. Each of them looked his calling. The reverend doctor had lived a good deal among books in his study. The doctor, as we will call the medical gentleman, had been writing about the country for between thirty and forty years his face looked tough and weather-worn while the reverend doctor's hardy as it appeared was of finer texture the doctor's was the graver of the two there was something of grimness about it partly owing to the northeasters he had faced for so many years partly to long companionship with that stern personage who never deals in sentiment or pleasantry His speech was apt to be brief and peremptory. It was a way he had got by ordering patients. But he could discourse somewhat on occasion, as the reader may find out. The reverend doctor had an open, smiling expression, a cheery voice, a hearty laugh, and a cordial way with him which some thought too lively for his cloth, but which children, who are good judges of such matters, delighted in so that he was the favorite of all the little rogues about town but he had the clerical art of sobering down in a moment when asked to say grace while somebody was in the middle of some particularly funny story and though his voice was so cheery in common talk in the pulpit like almost all preachers he had a wholly different and peculiar way of speaking supposed to be more acceptable to the creator than the natural manner in point of fact most of our anti-papal and anti prelatical clergymen do really intone their prayers without suspecting in the least that they have fallen into such a romish practice this is the way the conversation between the doctor of divinity and the doctor of medicine was going on at the point where these notes take it up obi tres medici you know doctor your profession has always had the credit of being lax in doctrine though pretty stringent in practice ha ha some priest said that the doctor answered dryly they always talked latin when they had a bigger lie than common to get rid of good said the reverend doctor i'm afraid they would lie a little sometimes but isn't there some truth in it doctor Don't you think your profession is apt to see nature in the place of the God of nature, to lose sight of the great first cause in their daily study of secondary causes? I've thought about that, the doctor answered, and I've talked about it and read about it, and I've come to the conclusion that nobody believes in God and trusts in God quite so much as the doctor's only it isn't just the sort of deity that some of your profession have wanted them to take up with there was a student of mine wrote a dissertation on the natural theology of health and disease and took that old lying proverb for his motto he knew a good deal more about books than ever i did and had studied in other countries i'll tell you what he said about it he said the old heathen doctor Galen praised God for his handiwork in the human body, just as if he had been a Christian, or the psalmist himself. He said they had this sentence set up in large letters in the great lecture-room in Paris, where he attended. I dressed his wound, and God healed him. That was an old surgeon's saying, and he gave a long list of doctors who were not only Christians, but famous ones i grant you though ministers and doctors are very apt to see differently in spiritual matters that's it said the reverend doctor you are apt to see nature where we see god and appeal to science where we are contented with revelation we don't separate god and nature perhaps as you do the doctor answered when we say that god is omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient we are a little more apt to mean it than your folks are. We think, when a wound heals, that God's presence and power and knowledge are there, healing it, just as that old surgeon did. We think a good many theologians, working among their books, don't see the facts of the world they live in. When we tell them of these facts, they are apt to call us materialists and atheists and infidels and all that. "'we can't help seeing the facts, "'and we don't think it's wicked to mention them.' "'Do tell me,' the reverend doctor said, "'some of these facts we are in the habit of overlooking, "'and which your profession thinks it can see and understand.' "'That's very easy,' the doctor replied. "'For instance, you don't understand "'or don't allow for idiosyncrasies, as we learn to. "'We know that food and physic "'act differently with different people.' but you think the same kind of truth is going to suit or ought to suit all minds we don't fight with a patient because he can't take magnesia or opium but you are all the time quarrelling over your beliefs as if belief did not depend very much on race and constitution to say nothing of early training do you mean to say that every man is not absolutely free to choose his beliefs the men you write about in your studies are but not the men we see in the real world there is some apparently congenital defect in the indians for instance that keeps them from choosing civilization and christianity so with the gypsies very likely everybody knows that catholicism or protestantism is a good deal a matter of race constitution has more to do with belief than people think for I went to a Universalist church when I was in the city one day, to hear a famous man whom all the world knows, and I never saw such pews full of broad shoulders and florid faces, and substantial wholesome-looking persons, male and female, in all my life. Why it was astonishing! Either their creed made them healthy, or they chose it because they were healthy. "'Your folks have never got the hang of human nature. "'I am afraid this would be considered a degrading and dangerous view of human beliefs "'and responsibility for them,' the reverend doctor replied. "'Prove to a man that his will is governed by something outside of himself, "'and you have lost all hold on his moral and religious nature.' there is nothing bad men want to believe so much as that they are governed by necessity now that which is at once degrading and dangerous cannot be true no doubt the doctor replied all large views of mankind limit our estimate of the absolute freedom of the will but i don't think it degrades or endangers us for this reason that while it makes us charitable to the rest of mankind our own sense of freedom whatever it is is never affected by argument conscience won't be reasoned with we feel that we can practically do this or that and if we choose the wrong we know we are responsible but observation teaches us this or that other race or individual has not the same practical freedom of choice i don't see how we can avoid this conclusion in the instance of the american indians the science of ethnology has upset a good many theoretical notions about human nature science said the reverend doctor science that was a word the apostle paul did not seem to think much of if we may judge by the epistle to timothy oppositions of science falsely so called i own that i am jealous of that word and the pretensions that go with it science has seemed to me to be very often only the handmaid of skepticism doctor the physician said emphatically science is knowledge nothing that is not known properly belongs to science whenever knowledge obliges us to doubt we are always safe in doubting astronomers foretell eclipses say how long comets are to stay with us point out where a new planet is to be found we see they know what they assert and the poor old roman catholic church has at last to knock under so geology proves a certain succession of events and the best christian in the world must make the earth's history square with it besides i don't think you remember what great revelations of himself the creator has made in the minds of the men who have built up science. You seem to me to hold his human masterpieces very cheap. Don't you think the inspiration of the Almighty gave Newton and Cuvier understanding? The Reverend Doctor was not arguing for victory. In fact, what he wanted was to call out the opinions of the old physician by a show of opposition, being already predisposed to agree with many of them he was rather trying the common arguments as one tries tricks of fence merely to learn the way of parrying but just here he saw a tempting opening and could not resist giving a home thrust yes but you surely could not consider it inspiration of the same kind as that of the writers of the old testament that cornered the doctor and he paused a moment before he replied then he raised his head so as to command the reverend doctor's face through his spectacles and said i did not say that you are clear i suppose that the omniscient spoke through solomon but that shakespeare wrote without his help the reverend doctor looked very grave it was a bold blunt way of putting the question he turned it aside with the remark "'that Shakespeare seemed to him at times "'to come as near inspiration as any human being "'not included among the sacred writers. "'Doctor,' the physician began, as from a sudden suggestion, "'you won't quarrel with me "'if I tell you some of my real thoughts, will you?' "'Say on, my dear sir, say on,' the minister answered "'with his most genial smile. "'Your real thoughts are just what I want to get at.' A man's real thoughts are a great rarity. If I don't agree with you, I shall like to hear you. The doctor began, and in order to give his thoughts more connectedly, we will omit the conversational breaks, the questions, and comments of the clergyman, and all accidental interruptions. When the old ecclesiastics said that where there were three doctors, there were two atheists, they lied, of course. They called everybody who differed from them atheists, until they found out that not believing in God wasn't nearly so ugly a crime as not believing in some particular dogma. Then they called them heretics, until so many good people had been burned under that name that it began to smell too strong of roasting flesh, and after that infidels, which properly means people without faith of whom there are not a great many in any place or time but then of course there was some reason why doctors shouldn't think about religion exactly as ministers did or they never would have made that proverb it's very likely that something of the same kind is true now whether it is so or not i am going to tell you the reasons why it would not be strange if doctors should take rather different views from clergymen about some matters of belief i don't of course mean all doctors nor all clergymen some doctors go as far as any old new england divine and some clergymen agree very well with the doctors that think least according to rule to begin with their ideas of the creator himself they always see him trying to help his creatures out of their troubles a man no sooner gets a cut than the great physician whose agency we often call nature, goes to work, first to stop the blood, and then to heal the wound, and then to make the scar as small as possible. If a man's pain exceeds a certain amount, he faints, and so gets relief. If it lasts too long, habit comes in to make it tolerable. If it is altogether too bad, he dies." that is the best thing to be done under the circumstances so you see the doctor is constantly in presence of a benevolent agency working against a settled order of things of which pain and disease are the accidents so to speak well no doubt they find it harder than clergymen to believe that there can be any world or state from which this benevolent agency is wholly excluded this may be very wrong But it is not unnatural. They can hardly conceive of a permanent state of being in which cuts would never try to heal, nor habit render suffering endurable. This is one effect of their training. Then again their attention is very much called to human limitations. Ministers work out the machinery of responsibility in an abstract kind of way. They have a sort of algebra of human nature in which friction and strength or weakness of material are left out. You see, a doctor is in the way of studying children from the moment of birth upwards. For the first year or so he sees that they are just as much pupils of their Maker as the young of any other animals. Well, their Maker trains them to pure selfishness. Why? in order that they may be sure to take care of themselves so you see when a child comes to be we will say a year and a day old and makes his first choice between right and wrong he is at a disadvantage for he has that visitergo as we doctors call it that force from behind of a whole year's life of selfishness for which he is no more to blame than a calf is to blame For having lived in the same way purely to gratify his natural appetites then we see that baby grow up to a child and if he is fat and stout and red and lively we expect to find him troublesome and noisy and perhaps sometimes disobedient more or less that's the way each new generation breaks its eggshell but if he is very weak and thin and is one of the kind that may be expected to die early, he will very likely sit in the house all day and read good books about other little sharp-faced children just like himself, who died early, having always been perfectly indifferent to all the outdoor amusements of the wicked little red-cheeked children. Some of the little folks we watch grow up to be young women, and occasionally one of them gets nervous, what we call hysterical, and then that girl will begin to play all sorts of pranks to lie and cheat perhaps in the most unaccountable way so that she might seem to a minister a good example of total depravity we don't see her in that light we give her iron and valerian and get her on horseback if we can and so expect to make her will come all right again by and by we are called in to see an old baby threescore years and ten or more old we find this old baby has never got rid of that first year's teaching which led him to fill his stomach with all he could pump into it and his hands with everything he could grab people call him a miser we are sorry for him but we can't help remembering his first year's training and the natural effect of money on the great majority of those that have it so while the ministers say he shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven we like to remind them that with god all things are possible once more we see all kinds of monomania and insanity we learn from them to recognize all sorts of queer tendencies in minds supposed to be sane so that we have nothing but compassion for a large class of persons condemned as sinners by theologians but considered by us as invalids we have constant reasons for noticing the transmission of qualities from parents to offspring and we find it hard to hold a child accountable in any moral point of view for inherited bad temper or tendency to drunkenness as hard as we should to blame him for inheriting gout or asthma i suppose we are more lenient with human nature than theologians generally are we know that the spirits of men and their views of the present and the future go up and down with the barometer and that a permanent depression of one inch in the mercurial column would affect the whole theology of christendom ministers talk about the human will as if it stood on a high lookout with plenty of light and elbow-room reaching to the horizon doctors are constantly noticing how it is tied up and darkened by inferior organization by disease and all sorts of crowding interferences until they get to look upon hottentots and indians and a good many of their own race as a kind of self-conscious blood-clocks with very limited power of self-determination that's the tendency i say of a doctor's experience but the people to whom they address their statements of the results of their observation belong to the thinking class of the highest races and they are conscious of a great deal of liberty of will so in the face of the fact that civilization with all it offers has proved a dead failure with the aboriginal races of this country on the whole i say a dead failure they talk as if they knew from their own will all about that of a digger indian we are more apt to go by observation of the facts in the case we are constantly seeing weakness where you see depravity i don't say we're right i only tell you what you must often find to be the fact right or wrong in talking with doctors you see too our notions of bodily and moral disease or sin are apt to go together we used to be as hard on sickness as you were on sin we know better now we don't look at sickness as we used to and try to poison it with everything that is offensive burnt toads and earthworms and viper broth and worse things than these we know that disease has something back of it which the body isn't to blame for at least in most cases and which very often it is trying to get rid of just so with sin i will agree to take a 100 newborn babes of a certain stock and return seventy-five of them in a dozen years true and honest if not pious children and i will take another hundred of a different stock and put them in the hands of a certain Ann Street or Five Points teachers, and seventy-five of them will be thieves and liars at the end of the same dozen years. I have heard of an old character, Colonel Jocks, I believe it was, a famous cattle-breeder who used to say he could breed to pretty much any pattern he wanted to. Well, we doctors see so much of families how the tricks of the blood keep breaking out, just as much in character as they do in looks, that we can't help feeling as if a great many people hadn't a fair chance to be what is called good, and that there isn't a text in the Bible better worth keeping always in mind than that one, Judge not, that ye be not judged. As for our getting any quarter at the hands of theologians, we don't expect it, and have no right to, YOU DON'T GIVE EACH OTHER ANY QUARTER. I HAVE HAD TWO RELIGIOUS BOOKS SENT ME BY FRIENDS WITHIN A WEEK OR TWO. ONE IS MR. BROWNSON'S. HE IS AS FAIR AND SQUARE AS EUCLID, A REAL HONEST, STRONG THINKER, AND ONE THAT KNOWS WHAT HE IS TALKING ABOUT, FOR HE HAS TRIED ALL SORTS OF RELIGIONS, PRETTY MUCH. HE TELLS US THAT THE ROMAN CATHOLIC CHURCH IS THE ONE THROUGH WHICH ALONE WE CAN HOPE FOR HEAVEN the other is by a worthy episcopal rector who appears to write as if he were in earnest and he calls the papacy the devil's masterpiece and talks about the satanic scheme of that very church through which alone as mr brownson tells us we can hope for heaven what's the use in our caring about hard words after this atheists heretics infidels and the like they are after all only the cinders picked up out of those heaps of ashes round in the stumps of the old stakes where they used to burn men women and children for not thinking just like other folks they'll crock your fingers but they can't burn us doctors are the best natured people in the world except when they get fighting with each other and they have some advantages over you you inherit your notions from a set of priests that had no wives and no children or none to speak of and so let their humanity die out of them it didn't seem much to them to condemn a few thousand millions of people to purgatory or worse for a mistake of judgment they didn't know what it was to have a child look up in their faces and say father it will take you a hundred or two more years to get decently humanized after so many centuries of dehumanizing celibacy besides though our libraries are perhaps not commonly quite so big as yours god opens one book to physicians that a good many of you don't know much about the book of life that is none of your dusty folios with black letters between pasteboard and leather but it is printed in bright red type and the binding of it is warm and tender to every touch. They reverence that book as one of the Almighty's infallible revelations. They will insist on reading you lessons out of it, whether you call them names or not. These will always be lessons of charity. No doubt nothing can be more provoking to listen to. But do beg your folks to remember that the Smithfield fires are all out, and that the cinders are very dirty, and not in the least dangerous. They'd a great deal better be civil, and not be throwing old proverbs in the doctor's faces, when they say that the man of the old monkish notions is one thing, and the man they watch from his cradle to his coffin is something very different. It has cost a good deal of trouble to work the doctor's talk up into this formal shape, some of his sentences have been rounded off for him and the whole brought into a more rhetorical form than it could have pretended to if taken as it fell from his lips but the exact course of his remarks has been followed and as far as possible his expressions have been retained though given in the form of a discourse it must be remembered that this was a conversation much more fragmentary and colloquial than it seems as just read the reverend doctor was very far from taking offence at the old physician's freedom of speech he knew him to be honest kind charitable self-denying whenever any sorrow was to be alleviated always reverential with a cheerful trust in the great father of all mankind to be sure his senior deacon old deacon Shearer, who seemed to have got his scripture teachings out of the vinegar Bible—the one where vineyard is misprinted vinegar, which a good many people seem to have adopted as the true reading—his senior deacon had called Dr. Kittredge an infidel, but the reverend doctor could not help feeling that, unless the text, by their truths ye shall know them, were an interpolation, the doctor was the better Christian of the two whatever his senior deacon might think about it he said to himself that he shouldn't be surprised if he met the doctor in heaven yet inquiring anxiously after old deacon shearer he was on the point of expressing himself very frankly to the doctor with that benevolent smile on his face which had sometimes come near giving offence to the readers of the vinegar edition but he saw that the physician's attention had been arrested by Elsie. He looked in the same direction himself, and could not help being struck by her attitude and expression. There was something singularly graceful in the curves of her neck and the rest of her figure, but she was so perfectly still that it seemed as if she were hardly breathing. Her eyes were fixed on the young girl with whom Mr. Bernard was talking, He had often noticed their brilliancy, but now it seemed to him that they appeared dull, and the look on her features was as of some passion which had missed its stroke. Mr. Bernard's companion seemed unconscious that she was the object of this attention, and was listening to the young master, as if he had succeeded in making himself very agreeable. Of course dick venner had not mistaken the game that was going on the schoolmaster meant to make elsie jealous and he had done it that's it get her savage first and then come wheedling round her a sure trick if he isn't headed off somehow but dick saw well enough that he had better let elsie alone just now and thought the best way of killing the evening would be to amuse himself in a little lively talk with mrs blanche creamer and incidentally to show elsie that he could make himself acceptable to other women if not to herself the doctor presently went up to elsie determined to engage her in conversation and get her out of her thoughts which he saw by her look were dangerous her father had been on the point of leaving helen darley to go to her but felt easy enough When he saw the old doctor at her side and so went on talking the reverend doctor being now left alone engaged the widow rowans who put the best face on her vexation she could but was devoting herself to all the underground deities for having been such a fool as to ask that pale-faced thing from the institute to fill up her party there is no space left to report the rest of the conversation if there was anything of any significance in it it will turn up by-and-by no doubt at ten o'clock the reverend doctor called miss letty who had no idea it was so late mr bernard gave his arm to helen mr richard saw to mrs blanche creamer the doctor gave elsie a cautioning look and went off alone thoughtful dudley venner and his daughter got into their carriage and were whirled away The widow's gambit was played, and she had not won the game. End of chapter twenty two.